I'm not actually sporting a moustache yet for November because we pre-recorded this in October. Yes, October, the month before November. Um, it's a really great podcast because we've got Tim and Ollie on from the Elios Partnership. Uh, we speak about their experiences with mental health, being service people within the army, um, how they dealt with it, how they overcame it, and where they're currently at now, and the path in which they're trying to cave within the world of mental health within larger organizations is a really, really great episode, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So um, over to you, Ben. Welcome back to the Otter Culture Podcast. You're joined with co-host Dan Pettit. Yes. And we have some special guests today, Ollie Church and Tim Rushmere from Elios Partnership. Elios Partnership. Correct. Cool. Um, guys, thank you for coming on today. We, we're doing like a bit of a campaign around November, men's mental health. Uh, wanted to get you guys on to kind of talk about, well, those things in particular, um, your journey with mental health and the company that you then started because of it. Um so without further ado, do you guys want to give us a quick introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure. Shall I go? Um, so I spent about 12, 13 years in the army, in the Royal Artillery, um, and um, absolutely no awareness of what mental health was. I uh, had, had a pretty good early career, but I did have an early experience that, that you know, then it was a traumatic experience, caused some sort of you know, in a conflict, and, and I just went on for a sort of 10 years or so, just parking it, moving on, going again, when I had a dip, regather myself, push myself again, and so on. And um, then, uh, really interestingly, I had, in about December 2015, I started getting these feelings that someone's about to go wrong. Uh, and I actually spoke to a colleague of mine, who's the sort of chief of staff, and said, I can't really explain this. I feel like something's about to go wrong. And, and I'd assumed I'd just drop a project at work or something, and, and it was outward facing. He didn't really understand what that was. Went on Christmas leave, came back. And about two days after I came back, I just hit the floor. Like massive um, sort of acute panic attack, Q breakdown, three diagnoses, um, end of story at work, 18 months sick leave. You know, and then, and then I suppose that's the end of phase one of my journey. And, and that's when I started to realize that what mental health was, what poor mental health was, um, connected it with a lot of those experiences that I had over that 10 years. Um, but genuinely, that was really the moment that I had that initial understanding. Was it like a gut feeling? What, what was? Yeah, yeah, really. Is this really something that you feel within feelings. inside? Then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and clearly it was it was a, a form of acute anxiety that it had built up, and that anxiety, I guess, had built up over over that ten year period. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely gut based feeling, and of course, consciously, you're trying to find an explanation for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and our mind's very good at, at finding evidence to support our thinking. But if you can't clarify your thinking, then you're, you're constantly going to bring false evidence into play and false scenarios. So yeah. that's why I think I, I, it was going to be, you know, the dropping of a project or the missing of a deadline. Um, you know, I couldn't cope with the workload, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, my, my, my gut, my body, my mind were indicating to me that I was about to pile in. Did the did your like colleagues around you? Did they notice no, the shift all change? No, you, not cause, at all. Because to the outset, you were still Tim. Mm. You were just normal. There was they couldn't see anything going on inside. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'd only been there for about five six months. You know, new team, etc. So that comes into play. But you know, you'll probably mention this as well, Ollie. But we had um, in the organisation a really low level of understanding what mental health was. There was no formal education and stuff. So of course that has a part to play. It doesn't really set other people up to be able to observe declines in people. Yeah. And I had no inner ability to recognize that myself. So 
you know, logically that all makes sense, doesn't it? That those scenarios can play out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for yourself, Ollie? Yeah, so what Tim uh, didn't mention is that we actually joined the army together mm. nearly 20 years ago, probably about the time you were born, Ben. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so we joined the army, uh, went our separate ways. Um, I did tours of Iraq, Afghanistan, Northern Ireland. Um, and in 2010, my luck sort of ran out. I've always been quite accident prone, and I ended up treading on an explosive device in um, in, in Afghanistan. And um, I was lucky it was pretty much the bomb maker's bad day. You know, they say in car factories, there's always like a Friday. You got that car built on a Friday. I think the bomb that I trod on was built on a Friday. (laughs) Um, But it left me with a a shattered foot, a bit of a brain injury, which, you know, still has the odd odd impact on me, but but largely sort of um, got to grips with it. Um, And so I had to leave the army. um, And... I then moved over to <clears throat> the civil service and um, really what impacted me was probably not the trauma in the way that Tim was impacted um, because I never developed PTSD. Um, but I think it was more depression and anxiety. Um, and when I think back, it was probably due to um, leaving the army in a way that was not on my own terms. So. Um, what most soldiers will feel is that they develop a really strong sense of identity, a really strong sense of connection with the people around them, and a really strong sense of purpose. And all of those are really, really good protective factors for our mental health. And so we can be robust. We can just keep going when, you know, as Tim did, you know, when things are going wrong around you, people are getting injured, people are getting killed. Actually, together you move forward and you look after each other. But the moment you leave that environment, your identity is gone. Your connection with those people is largely severed. And that sense of purpose is, is frankly, you know, disappeared. But you don't necessarily notice those things expanding. It's a bit like a balloon blowing up. You know, this protective cushion around you that when you leave, it deflates. But nobody tells you it's going to deflate. And nobody tells you that you have to reinflate it with something else. You've got to find that identity. You've got to be you. You've got to have that connection with other people around you. You've got to reestablish that sense of purpose. And and so I think that's where my depression, my anxiety, my suicidal thoughts were really generated from. And and a bit like Tim, my knowledge around mental health was very limited because in the army, as soon as you mentioned the word mental health, it's right, like, let's get the doctor involved. Let's get the medical chain involved. And so the ability for the leadership to be proactive about it. And this is when we were serving. I think it's getting better now. I think a lot of work has been done. But the leadership, essentially, it's taken out of their hands. But also, you know, the emphasis on welfare of the soldiers is is, is definitely there. But it's always been from a, a slightly sort of vague perspective. Um, it's about making sure that people are sort of looked after generally. And it was never about developing awareness or knowledge, or a culture around mental health. Um, and and so I think that's where, and I wouldn't say I was let down, I just think it's how society is, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and the army is just a reflection of society in many ways. Um, and so, yeah, I, I because I had no knowledge, um, I couldn't really identify what was going on. So I knew something was up, a bit like Tim, but I couldn't make that connection and eventually... Uh, and, and actually, really importantly, neither could people around me. So they could probably see something was up. 
Um, but nobody either had the knowledge or the confidence to approach me and say, Ollie, you know, I think you might be depressed. Um, therefore, go and see the doctor. And, you know, what we talk about absolutely is having the right conversation at the right time with the right person. Do that as early as possible. And actually, many of these issues can be solved, you know, through leadership, through management, through friendship, rather than having to be medicalized. Do you, do you, do you both think that um, depending on your rank in the military, it makes it harder to admit you need help? Would you say that's a fair statement? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that to a certain extent. I think I think this awareness comes into play again because you know, the way I related to my experiences was was just that it was to be expected in response to what I was working on at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it wasn't a mental health thing. I didn't identify it like that at that stage. Mm-hmm. But I think um, certainly from a military perspective, you know, if you're in a position of leadership which is uh, effectively selfless service, you don't put yourself first, that type of scenario. You, you tend to not really pay attention to yourself like you, you should do. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not in a way that is you know, socially recommended now. People are you know, out there on LinkedIn you know, sharing these sorts of insights that you need to prioritize self-care and so on. Culturally, we didn't really do that <clears throat> as leaders, regardless of rank. It wasn't really in our psyche. Mm. So, so the whole self-care thing came across, I think, through that 10-year period for me as a, as, um, as a nice to have if I had time and space. Mm. But, but it wasn't my first thought because you're focused on other people. As you go up through ranks, and I didn't get really far, you know, I, I went sort of two or three up. Um, it, you probably double down on that mentality to a certain degree. But I think to a certain extent, if you promote to a point where you, you feel settled and I'm, I'm sort of achieving my aims here in this organization, then, I mean, I've seen evidence in this area with friends. You probably do start to settle. You probably do start to look after yourself a little bit better. But in the early years, I think it just naturally comes across as a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. When, so you were saying, Ollie, about how you, you came out of the army and you, you started suffering with depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and stuff like that. Did you ever have that prior to well, when you were in the army, did you ever have, ever have those feelings or was it something that kind of, it was obviously that kind of accident that triggered that? Yeah. And, and was it awareness of a younger, you know, I feel like as young men and I've had it myself that I don't feel, I'm like, I'm sometimes I feel indestructible. I've never had these thoughts and feelings. Oh yeah. And if we speak to the guys, and it's something that we've joked about is I've always been the guys like, I don't really think I have that. Yeah. And, and is that something, does it take something to do it or do we all have it? We just don't notice those feelings. You know, and that's a difficulty is that um, the factors involved in our mental health, whether that's positive or negative, is uh, is really, really complex. Um, and, and it's funny that you talk about the invincibility, because I think there is a thing, particularly in younger men, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, nothing can touch me. You know, I remember actually three days before I got blown up, I took a machine gun bullet through the side of my rucksack bounced off my body arm and I'm like, yeah, nobody can get me. <laughs> the irony is you probably thought you were bombproof. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you um, went into the next day thinking, yeah. Yeah. And, and I was really just keen that my wife didn't find out. Um, uh, but um, so, yeah, there is that invincibility. But there's also that support uh, of people around you. This sort of, um, you know, I, I come from a very strong family regiment uh, and still very, very much in touch with people from it. And there's this really tight bond, which does protect your mental health. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, there is also 
yeah, this, the folly of youth. As an old man now, I can probably say that. Um, and, and, you know, as life goes on, it does get more complex. You potentially get more risk factors involved. You know, you get more... It's maybe harder because of other commitments to maintain the protective factors, things that are going to look after our mental health. Um, but for me, you know, there was the added complexity of there was a brain injury. You know, it 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 it, um, it affected the part of my brain um, which regulates emotion, for example. Uh, so that was really difficult. And 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 I've I, I've built coping mechanisms around that. You know, largely through things like meditation, which is something that I would never. Have, have believed could have an impact um, because you know I think like a lot of people I got to a point where I was really depressed really anxious and thought right I just need medication to fix me mm. and that's definitely part of the answer for some people at various stages but actually a, a lot of it was realizing that I had to um, I had to do a lot of work on myself on how I thought on how I lived my life um, and that's something that that again was was a big realization was that actually uh, and we, we we talk about this idea of mental fitness and we we liken it to physical fitness so you know if you want to get fit you can come to me and say right come and um tell me how to do this motivate me um give me a training plan run alongside me but ultimately i can't go for a run for you and a lot of this stuff we have to do for ourselves and and that's really really difficult to except if you're already you know quite a long way down on that mental health continuum and, and you're already feeling you know um feeling in a bad in a bad space and that's that's really difficult do you think if do you think if you hadn't stepped on on it that day mm. do you think it would have do you think your journey would have been the same or do you think the when it happened it just sped the process up um i think that was you know, it's one of those sliding door moments, isn't it? Yeah. Where, where, where it ch uh, triggered a, a, a chain of events, which, you know, I could not have predicted. Uh, but also, you know, I didn't necessarily plan it that well. I, I, I was really lucky. As I said, my injuries were, were pretty minimal. Um, but um, but they're also uh, unlike a, you know, a, a traumatic amputation which is a really difficult thing to experience. And, you know, I, I know a number of people who are still dealing with that. The My sort of challenge has been a bit, lot more subtle. So I, uh, I mentioned to you, Ben, since I last saw you, I started going deaf in my <laughs> left ear and got tinnitus and, you know, uh, a little bit of um, a little bit of vertigo and imbalance. And it's just these things, you know, just it's this point that actually adversity will continue to show up in our lives to a greater or lesser extent. And actually, you know, I've got to this point where actually I'm far better able to deal with this stuff than I would have done if it hadn't happened, for example. So in a way, you, you know, talk about sort of speeding up this process. I was really good at, in the army, being robust, which is, I think, subtly different from being resilient. Because robust, you just carry on, carry on, carry on, as, you know, as Tim talked about. But being emotionally resilient is about understanding what affects your mental health mm. and understanding that there are risk factors which are going to negatively affect it. There are protective factors which are going to, you know, keep it positive. Um, and it's about understanding and identifying these things and planning your life accordingly. Um, but nobody really teaches us that as, as we grow up, do they? No, exactly. I, w I wonder how different um, military careers would be if the support 
and the understanding was there from the get-go you know if, if that was bred within the culture from the from the ground up because from an outsider it looks mm. it, it looks so painfully obvious that that needs to be there you know <laughs> yeah. I, I think it is i think they're they're getting a lot better I, I think the argument for that is clear and and you know we keep coming back to the idea of awareness and the reason that that's so important is that really that's the foundation so awareness and self-knowledge are the foundation um that set you up for development of insight that are personal to you which sets you up to develop intention to make some changes or um you know, develop ways of being more emotionally agile, more flexible in the way that you live your life. Um, and all that comes prior to the potential for you to take action. And, and ultimately, as Ollie, you know, you go back, go back to mental fitness, you know, that is about applied learning. That is about taking action that makes a difference to you in your life. Um, and of course, any sort of informal or structured or formal education, which is uh, what, I, what I tend to, to call, you know, an upstream approach, so we're more proactive and preventative um, than we are responsive and reactive. That is going to give people the opportunity to start building awareness, to identify these little nuggets of information that help them make sense of experiences they've had um, and, and do what we call is um, the, the connecting of the dots. Mm. And, and the connecting of the dots is the generation of insights where you start piecing together past experience or current experience. And that sets you up to directly influence how you experience life. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I would say you know, soldiers and service people are pretty agile and flexible in, in how they approach, um, you know, their work and how they live their lives. But arguably, the development of more emotional agility will be a huge advantage, um, you know, to people in service and, and arguably in, in any walk of life. Yeah. But, but I think we should recognise that there is a lot of good work going on in the military and specifically the yeah. army. Um, but this stuff doesn't change overnight. You know, what we talk about um, is, is this sort of realisation that we came to, that this has got to be a shared responsibility um, between the organisation. So it's got those policies, those processes, that training, the education in place. It's the leaders making sure that actually you're living by those, uh, by that ethos um, and that you know, you, you give um, sufficient attention to it. You give people the time, the space, the permission to explore this stuff, but also the individual. As I said earlier, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that we can't do for other people. Um, and that's the hardest thing to do in, in many cases when you're already experiencing poor mental health is to take that responsibility because other people can see it. Um, and that's why, you know, recovery you know, can take a long, long time because things have to start lining up. There are things that you yeah. can do to accelerate it by understanding what's going to contribute to a good recovery. Recovery for many people is ongoing throughout life. Yeah, you know? it's, it's really interesting you said about connecting the dots, Tim, because when I had my bouts of anxiety, the worst part was always not knowing why it was happening mm. and, and what it was. It's scary, isn't it? Scary, and because I couldn't control it, that made it 10 times worse. Yeah. It's, only, it's only after experience of going through it, understanding what tr my triggers were and how it would affect my anxiety, I, thought, I started to think, okay, I think I can have a grasp on this now because I know why it's happening. Yeah. Um, and then it led me to the point of like reaching out, asking for help. And I remember I spoke to a friend about it and they said, and it's always stayed with me, the line she said, she goes, um, mental health is not a life sentence, you know, and that really helped helped get me out of the pit that I was in because I was thinking because because the anxiety was so high I thought this is it now this is yeah. my life forever yeah. yeah absolutely you know but it's but it wasn't and yeah. it did it did end but yeah. it's not like you break a leg it's like all right six weeks go go put your leg up you'll be fine it's like no one really knows how long it's going to take you everyone's different you just yeah. have to kind of go through this journey 
But the, you know, the, the reality is that the human brain, the human mind are really, really adaptable, aren't they? Mm. They are flexible, they're malleable, but we've got to get them in the right position yeah. to receive the right information, to get into those right habits. Because, you know, as you say, anxiety is something that is very, very physical. Um, you know, it, Tim sort of talked about it earlier and it's it's scary and anxiety makes you anxious. <laughs> yes, it's a vicious circle. It is, it's really vicious. Yeah. Um, and so actually, you know, bringing a degree of awareness, a bit of consciousness to it, to, to recognize it in yourself and then to understand what you can do. For me, that's really what resilience is about. Resilience is not about keeping on going, you know, until you fall over, which is what we both did. That's a, that's a degree of robustness, which the army traditionally has been really, really good at developing because people need to carry on in difficult situations. But that resilience is about adapting our lifestyles, changing what we do and when we do it so that we can, if you want to call it, perform sustainably in our professional and our personal lives. And, and that's something, you know, I probably wouldn't have if I hadn't trodden on that device because I probably just would have carried on this mindset. Possibly I'd still be in the army. Possibly I would have experienced depression for all sorts of other reasons. Yeah, exactly. You know, we have a family history, or a family history of bipolar. Don't think I, I, I have that. But, you know, that could have happened. Mm. All of these things, you know, come into play. Do you think um, mental health issues as a whole is becoming more common? Or do you think the awareness has just increased to a point now where the conversations are there and these issues have all, always existed? Yeah, the, f the first part of that, I, I've always found it actually quite difficult to form a view um, or certainly express a view. Um, but I think over the last couple of years, for slightly different reasons, you know, we've seen evidence of a lot more people relating to what mental health is. Um, in either a personal or collective context. Um, and, and there's always been, I think, you know, with many people, an assumption that the term mental health is automatically a negative thing, yeah. that, it, that it indicates that, that it is poor mental health, and it's not. It's just an expression of the state of your mental health, and it can be positive or negative. But, um, yeah, whether, whether the prevalence is increasing, I'm not sure. Um, of, of course, there's a positive somewhere hidden in that which is if people are more aware and therefore connecting their own dots and that leads to them um, getting to the point they realize actually there is something that's problematic and I need help with something they may go on to get a diagnosis mm. and therefore they're going to contribute to the stats but almost in a positive way it's all awareness then isn't it really mm. yeah. yeah 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 I mean again it, it's difficult to form a a completely balanced view on this I think People have always experienced poor mental health. So I found out relatively recently that my great-grandfather um, was essentially locked up in a lunatic asylum for the majority of his life. Wow. And it was probably bipolar, but that's how they dealt with it then. Um, so I think people have always experienced it. I think there were probably large sections of our society that experienced some kind of post-traumatic stress after world wars, for example. Um, and, and it manifested itself in, in all sorts of different things, um, in, in all sorts of different ways. So I think it's always been there. Um, I think people are more willing to talk about it, explore it, and maybe actually recover in a way that people, you know, didn't recover in the past. They just they just try to carry on and, and use drugs or, or alcohol to self-medicate or, yeah. or even sadly took their own lives. Um, but what I would say on top of that is that actually... I think increasingly uh, in the 21st century, 
we're living in a way in which we're not designed for. You know, we, we don't move that much, do we? Um, and, and, you know, it's very easy to sit down most of the day. Most of us work in a, in a sort of sedentary environment. We're designed to move. You know, that's a really good natural way of getting rid of a lot of the stress hormones, stress chemicals in our bodies. Um, we're not designed for the information overload, which is just getting more and more. <laughs> you know, we're designed apparently to know about 100 people. So the people in our tribe or our village, not these tens of thousands of people that we apparently know on Facebook or, or Instagram or whoever it is, because we're not really good at dealing with this feeling of being judged or comparing ourselves to hundreds of thousands of other people. And that's where social media has got a really a lot of good stuff about it. But it's also really potentially damaging, isn't mm. it? So all of these things are, are fundamentally at odds with how we are designed and therefore, I think, present risk factors. So that's why I think, you know, particularly after the pandemic, um, you know, a, a lot of people have tried to simplify their lives, haven't they? They maybe cut out social media. They maybe um, trying to connect with people in, in in real life, maybe more than they are virtually. So I think those, those are the sorts of things that we just need to bear in mind. It's a bit of a catch-22 social media, isn't it? Because it connects the world and it brings a lot of good. But equally, I, I don't even know how you begin to fix that judgment side of it, that feeling of being a judge, because how do you escape that? You can't really. That's like the human mindset, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, what I find really interesting is there there is so much opportunity in understanding mental health so that, that you know, in an individual context, someone can, um, they can influence their, their experience of life and their personal lives more directly. And of course, um, even though there are benefits of connection, which we've talked about being really important, you know, if, um, if society is setting us up in a way where we become over, overly reliant on external factors. You know that on paper is at odds with elements of our inner dialogue, our inner narrative, um, and what we call you know the, um, the the internal locus of control that we need. You know that is a position where we believe um, to our core that we can directly influence our circumstances, but actually elements of society and, and social media in particular, they're constantly teasing us away from retaining a high internal locus of control and externalize it where we be we become more dependent on external validation and if we're more dependent on external validation like, and i experienced this in in you know some some unfavorable ways during my recovery you you are more vulnerable to that judgment that the potentially might come the other way mm. you know you open yourself up to the world because you're looking at it and you're hoping for positive feedback supportive viewpoints but you can get the absolute opposite. Um, I don't know if you guys have, you know, sort of experienced that, Ben, from an anxiety perspective, but could you relate to, you know, when you're experiencing it, feeling increasingly open to judgment from other people, even though you didn't need it? Um, I think I've always, I think I've been lucky in the fact that I've felt like I've carried a sort of superpower in the fact that I don't really care what anyone thinks about me, okay, brilliant. which is yeah. has amazing perks, and yeah. there are some disadvantages to that. Um but definitely when I experienced anxiety, it was, um, and I started to open up about it, it, there was definitely a fear of being judged. Yeah. And I hadn't really experienced that with anything before. So yeah. that, which just made it worse. And then also you, you, the way I guess society is built up, I was much younger than I was about 21, 28 now. So I guess I'm still young. But um, the way society is built up, it, it kind of makes you feel that by admitting that there's something wrong, you're kind of admitting that you're broken and there's something wrong with you. 
when there's not, you know? Yeah. And I think it's it's almost the way it, my mindset is completely switched now by, you know, if you haven't experienced necessarily anything wrong mental health, I think that's even, that's more unnormal. Because I think, I think like poor mental health or, or, or problems of mental health, I think is, makes you human in a way in, in that sense does that make sense yeah absolutely and just understanding that yeah it's part of our makeup it's part, part yes. of why we've evolved and survived as a species yeah because we have this negativity bias quite often we will rush to see the worst case scenario so that we can plan for it we can protect we can prepare you know that's really useful if there's a saber-toothed tiger that's after you <laughs> it's not really that relevant in many of the cases in modern life is it you know we're lucky enough to live in a, a pretty peaceful country um, you know, you know, it, it's real, everyday life for us is pretty safe, isn't it? So actually, again, that's part of that calibration for the 21st century. We're still designed to be protecting ourselves in caves against tigers. Um, and that can be really useful. But if it sits there in our subconscious without us recognizing it and challenging it, that's where we get that really unhelpful, you know, what we might call thinking distortions, where we think, shit, you know, life is about to collapse when actually we just didn't get many, as many likes for our post on LinkedIn as we uh, as we were hoping to. <laughs> yeah. When when you um, when you've been dealing with these feelings, um, you've obviously you you may or may not have had support from outer people or people your loved ones and stuff like that. Um, but also as like a recommendation, are there ways that you can support people who are feeling, you know, not good? Because we've spoke about. You spoke heavily here about our feelings and how it's affected us, but how can you help or support a loved one? Because I've got loved ones who've, you know, who've dealt with these things themselves, and I found it the hardest thing to try and, what do I say? Mm. <laughs> what do you do? Mm. You can tell them that, oh, everything's going to be fine. But to them, that's like, they probably don't want to hear that. Yeah. I think, so what's the best way? I mean, I think to a certain extent, people need to be ready. I mean, we've already talked about a lot of the challenges there. So, you know, what, what's going on for that person particularly um, in an event where it's the first time they experience something that they're struggling with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we talked about the, the need of awareness and the fact that, you know, we're capable of pushing on for something like 10 years and, and more and still not really develop that. You know, that's a challenge. Um, the, uh, the fact that someone's uh, locus of control might be quite externally focused is another challenge. Uh, you've got inner conflict, um, you know, inner dialogue to wrestle with. Uh, there's that fear of judgment. There are so many... Um, complicating factors that are intertwined that make it hard for that person not only to recognize what might be going on and relate it um, you know to to something um, you know mental health um, but back to what Ollie said earlier quite often people simply need what we simplify as time space and permission in order to get to the point they generate those insights in order to get the, connect the dots um, if that if that makes sense and is not too drawn out um, because as you say, Dan, it's, it's difficult to support someone, um, if they're not on top of that stuff, because they're, they're effectively not ready, that they're not open to it. And for good reason, sometimes, you know, quite often people are very much aware, like I was of, of a sense of something building physically within, and, and that translates to a sense of fear of that thing actually coming out. And so automatically we put those coping mechanisms back in place. We push that thing back down. But over the long term, that does us quite a lot of damage. So we've got to support people through the natural tendency to what not, not want to let stuff surface, as well as all the other factors that are involved as well. 
Um, but the bottom line is, if you've got a good, I say network, but a, a good number of like virtuous connections around you, whether that's family, friends, trusted work colleagues, whoever it is, um, that is the best possible scenario to help someone get to the point where you can help them. So yeah, yeah. the need for psychological safety is a key one. Yeah, and, and not for in that feeling of not being judged. And I think yeah. it sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but actually sometimes just listening. Yeah. You know, just being very, very clear that you are there to listen, you're there to hear them, because actually, you know, particularly if we can, you know, address this stuff sooner rather than later, quite often what we're doing by talking is dragging all these feelings, thoughts out of our subconscious where we tend to think about things irrationally, fear-based, you know, illogically, catastrophically. You know, we've all had that waking up in the middle of the night, haven't we? You know, something which is, you know, we, we look at it the next day is nothing. But that's because our conscious brain is asleep. Our subconscious, you know, some people call it the chimp brain. That is what is overactive. And the minute that we can challenge that, and switch to the conscious brain, which is rational, which is logical, which is far calmer. You know, that's when actually just by talking, by letting these things out, that's when we start to make sense of it. And maybe that was part of your experience. I think you hit the nail on the head, yeah. Yeah, um, because, you know, the, uh, the human brain is a really complex thing and I wouldn't profess to understand it in any great detail, but it's about... I think looking at it, not necessarily from an academic or clinical or a, or a sort of medical perspective, but it's just thinking, right, how does this relate to me? Um, how do I challenge that inner critic? How do I challenge that negativity bias? But also just realizing that as humans, most of us are going through this mm. to a greater or less extent. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, just reassuring people. What you don't want to do is get into a competition and say, oh, yeah, I've, I've felt like that. But what I found is that simply getting out, maybe going for a walk, you side by side, you, you don't have that, you know, eye to eye thing, which can put people off, can't it? Yeah. You know, if I stare at you, yeah. Ben, you, tell, you me know, your, yeah. <laughs> tell me your feelings. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's about keeping it light, keeping it quite matter of fact, I found actually mm. often helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, saying, you know, actually, that's not that weird, you know. I've had those sort of thoughts. Yeah. What you don't want to be doing necessarily straight away is offering solutions because we probably can't directly fix what's going on. We can maybe take some of the burden, uh, but, you know, and I learned this with my wife. <laughs> it only took me about 15 years to work it out. <laughs> oh, we're getting insight here. Yeah, when, when she comes at the end of the day and unloads, because women typically are, are better at this sort of stuff, when she's doing that, she doesn't want my brilliant ideas on how to fix stuff. What she wants to do is to be heard, and 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 that's that's great. But as men, we like to fix things. You know, typically we like to to do that, and and there can be a time for that. Mm -hmm. But I think a, a again that coming back to that sense of permission. You know, if you were talking to me to me Dan, and and you were telling me about the fact that you were depressed, you know, I might say, you know, listen to you. You know, how are you feeling? How long have you felt like that? Um, if I was really worried, I might ask you directly whether you'd thought about taking your own life. Um, if I thought that was a, if I thought that was a risk, because we know that that is actually the most important thing to do is to confront these things. And you know, asking such—it's quite a brutal question. It yeah. feels like, yeah. but, but by them, by, by them talking about that, that will 
you know, by mm. them addressing it, does that help? Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. And I've done that on a number of times, number of occasions. Um, but it's scary, isn't it? And, yeah. and I would always, you know, there's some great free training out there. You know, the Zero Suicide Alliance, there's some free online training. It's just, you know, it's about ultimately not avoiding the really difficult but potentially tragic outcome of, of mm. not asking those questions. Um, sorry, to go back to my to my sort of uh, earlier point, you know, um, but I might get to the point, say to, say to you, Dan, look, I, I've, I've experienced depression in the past. Would it be useful to hear my experience and to hear what helped me? And you might be at a point where actually you're not ready for that. Or you might think, actually, wow, I'm not the only one who's been through this. Somebody has come out the other side. That helped me. And that's that. really useful. Yeah. Um, and and the, the important thing here is that we don't have to be experts, do we? You know, a lot of it is about some good basic knowledge, which, again, is freely available. It's about um, the right intention, mostly, that lack of judgment and an understanding that the reason that I think we've got to where we are in society, you know, it is getting better, but, but where it is a taboo is because there's this massive gap between ignorance around mental health, where, mm. let's face it, most of society probably still is, mm -hmm. And that expertise of psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, who are really, really important. But actually, there's a massive gap, isn't there? And there's a fear of stepping from the ignorance towards the expertise. And so that's really, you know, what, what we try and do is we're not experts. We're not, um, we're not clinically qualified. But what we are um, aware of is that actually those early conversations in a supportive, informed way are actually what we need as a society. It's normalization, isn't it? It's um yeah. I've had something similar recently where um my wife is eight and a half months pregnant and people have asked me along the way, like, you know, are you shitting yourself? Are you worried or this or sort of I'm not... nervous, anxious, worried? Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking <laughs> the whole time I'm thinking like not at all. Yeah. I'm not at all. But I guess my mindset has always been that this is literally one of the most normal things I can do as a person is to have a child. But it's the reason you're on earth, isn't it? Literally. And I think I can't think of a single thing that is more common than having kids yeah. you know yeah. when you think about it yeah. and i guess that's why i've always been oh yeah okay well i'm just gonna take it as it comes and then it got to the point i was thinking i started to feel guilty like oh my, sh should i be worried about this should <laughs> i feel nervous about it? And, I was, and then obviously that was the chimp brain talking to me and then I, logically i'm like no ben this is completely you feel how you want to feel but it's that contagious fear from other people yes exactly fear is contagious but also so is courage and and calmness and all that sort of stuff you've i've, I've listened to an interview with you before or maybe it was on the intros on your website um, and you spoke about how you went from commanding 100 soldiers to then obviously getting injured and, and feeling all these feelings but when you are commanding a group of soldiers um, do you do you have to go as a leader do you have to go out and do you have to notice signs that some people aren't in a better place or they aren't in a good place how does that how does that how do you do that when you're in a field when you're in Afghanistan or you're in Iraq how, how do you do these things so I mean I answers relatively instinctively so so it's real but i think i think there are two things that jump out for me i think that the first the first one is that that's the idea of um sort of selfless commitment mm -hmm. which i think comes with with any sort of leadership permission um position um and, and that can be as much as a parent um as a you know some sort of leader at work or a leader in the field in the military um and you know, on paper, it's completely logical that we don't really have the capacity for others unless we're on top of our own stuff or we have that sort of outward-facing mindset. 
that is what allows us to pick up on the signs of where someone is at, whether it's you know an improvement or it's a decline. Um, so I think you know that that ob- those observation skills are a product of your mindset and how you position yourself as some sort of leader whether that's um you know in, in an army context in barracks or in the field in any situation i think it's consistent to all scenarios and then um and then the second one of course is knowing your people so so yeah. um you know we can't observe change in people unless we have reference points mm-hmm. and and logically that is you need to know your people and you need to know them well um and you know there are examples that we've come across in organizations where Psychological safety as a is at a level that people are sort of buddying up, or they're working in close teams, and and there's there's trust, and they um, they look out for each other, and they've gone to the point where they said, um, I have a tendency to sometimes feel like this, or I have a history of depression. Um, if if I go into a dip, this is what you're likely to see in me. Um, would you let me know if you start seeing that? Because it's, re- it's really difficult at times when I'm on that decline to know to, to know and to pick it up myself. So that's a really, really good example of, of where um, if the culture is right and the level of connection is right, people can put very basic things in place that are really, really effective. And I guess other people, you know, that's not just military. That that can be done within any workplace, Absolutely. with any group of people, Absolutely. Right? a team, a sports team, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It comes back to this idea of... of of needing psychological safety and trust in place in order in order to get to that point yeah and which is why of, connection is so important yeah and, and a lot of organizations have that naturally coincidentally it you know because of good leadership because people get on well because people share values but there'll be other um other situations other scenarios where there is poor leadership people don't like each other people don't have aligned values where you know and those are the ingredients of probably you know low levels of psychological safety people not feeling comfortable about sharing you know things that are going on and therefore probably just compounding their own mental health because because they don't feel that they can be honest or they don't think anything's going to be done um and there are mechanisms that you can use to sort of force that not force it but encourage it build it uh and then you know, even where it exists coincidentally, naturally, organically, you know, there are other things that we can do to to reinforce it. Because the danger is um, that if something is happening organically, but, you know, there might be huge levels of psychological safety, but we don't even know what the concept means. Mm. So actually, if we if we have it coincidentally, then I would say it's at risk potentially if, you know, a poor leader comes in uh, of fragmenting. And that's why I think it's always useful to bring these concepts into to teams, into organisations, so that actually we can proactively work towards it. But it's tough; it really is. You know, as you know, it you know only takes one individual in, as part of a team who may be experiencing poor mental health, who may be um, just a difficult character. Because let's face it, some people just are difficult. Uh, it could be you know that that sort of um, that, that leader who comes in who is hugely ambitious for themselves doesn't really care about anybody else. So all of those things potentially come in, don't they? And, and they can threaten psychological safety. And it takes decisive leadership action, but also contribution from the rest of the team. I've talked about this shared responsibility. You know, it, it can't solely rest in the hands of a leader. Mm. Everybody's got to buy into it. Everybody's got to see the benefits and see that actually if you want a 
team that is going to perform well, perform sustainably, individually and collectively, actually that's really the, the key factor there, isn't it? Because if we feel safe as a team, we get to do our best work. Mm-hmm. We get to reach our potential. But that bad, that bad apple, you know, who, wherever they come from, potentially puts it at risk. Yeah, so I think um, in my mind, linked to this idea, there are, there are two key references or models that I use um, uh, to, to, to make an assessment of where a collective is at or a, where, where a team is at. And the, fir- the first one is um, you come across um, the seven habits of highly effective people yes. by Stephen Covey. Mm-hmm. So he talks about three levels. So he talks about dependent, independence, and interdependence. And so the way I relate to that is if you can recognize that there are people in your team who are dependent upon you, it potentially um, suggests that their external, lo- sorry, their locus of control is is quite external. Um, and you know what we're aiming for is that people have got the competence, the confidence, and the skills to be uh, emotionally independent, and that's what sets a team up to be interdependent, which is potentially takes them that level, as I said before, where you know people will openly share. Um, you know, that sort of degree of detail that actually helps the collective grow yeah. and go to the next level. Um, and then the, um, the the second one is just referring to what we call the four levels of psychological safety. So what we what don't want is we don't want people to feel excluded. So that's at sort of level zero. Our first aim is that they feel included. If they feel included, they can go on to, um, to effectively um, contribute more. So we call it contributor safety. Sorry, wrong. Learner safety. Safe to learn, safe to make mistakes, then contribute to safety. They're in a position where they can give more, receive more. So does that make sense? You're going mm-hmm. up through these levels, and ultimately the top level is challenger safety, where you can you can practically, objectively challenge each other um, under the right sort of vibe without people getting upset yeah. and focusing back in on themselves. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, the preference is probably the simplified dependent, independence, interdependence idea, but. Um, you know, for me, it totally makes sense in the subject area of mental health and connecting teams. But it's really difficult, isn't it? Because you can be leading a team and just assume that there yeah. is psychological safety there, that yeah. you know everybody feels comfortable to challenge you. But unless you discuss this stuff in an open, matter-of-fact way, you could have individuals in that team sitting in that exclusion zone. Now, that might be as a result of the actions of other members of a team. It could be something that they are experiencing in their own, um, in their own mental health. And, and that, that, that's a really interesting point that you made about the, the locus of control. Because, you know, I went from having a very, very strong internal locus of control. I had control over the course of my life. You know, what I did resulted in my, sorry, what I did led to my results. All of those sorts of things really, you know, having um, that sense of autonomy and, and, and control to having a completely externalized locus of control. You know, when I was really low just thinking nothing that i could do is going to make a difference mm. this is never going to get better this sense of permanence where i'm like mm. i'm going to feel like this forever if i haven't killed myself um like you and, mentioned ben yeah yeah you know that that um, sense yes. of i write myself off this is the end mm. and yeah. and and so these things can compound they can get worse and that is where i think the leader needs to understand okay where are we at you know where do you feel on this sort of zones of, of, of psychological safety. Okay, if you're low down on that, what can we do? What can you do to improve that, to increase it? 
because you know any any decent leader wants people to be in that space of at least contributor safety if not challenger safety where where people feel comfortable because that's you know that's the job of a leader isn't it the job of the leader is not to have all of the answers the job of the leader is not to control everything it's actually about getting everybody into a good space where yeah. they can do their best it's also a fantastic business metric like if, if you're if your team are all feeling good and chirpy and happy you're going to get the best out of them and the best work so of it really should be a metric that's focused on mm. when you think about it um but moving on to our next point mm. what you guys ended up doing together and mm. starting elios um tell us a bit about that mm. well, we could come at this a number of ways <laughs> have you heard of rove's farm yes yes as a as a new parent you will um End up going there a lot. Yeah, I spent yeah. a lot of time there. Yeah, I, rem I remember being there as a kid. How did yeah. this? There you go. Oh, <laughs> For those wow. people who don't live in the Greater Swindon area, yeah, uh, Rose Farm is a uh, you know like a, a kids' play farm. I don't know what you call them. But it's, yeah. it's a rave for kids, isn't it? Really, exactly. So what what year was this? This was uh, probably two two thousand seventeen, sixteen, seventeen, something. Yeah. Like that. Okay. Yeah. So we just happened to bump into each other, at Rose Farm. Um, I would say dragging, but no, re in reality, being dragged about by our kids. And we happened to both be in a similar place. We were, we were both at some stage of recovery, mm -hmm. um, having having left the army, not really knowing, well, me personally, not knowing which way was up, um, you know, going through a period of, of drifting and trying to figure out what on earth was going on. Um, and that was the first time we'd seen each other since we went through training together in, oh. what, 2003, four? Jeez. Yeah. Um, Did you instantly recognise each other? I think Did you, you recognised me. Walking? I think I was looking at the ground. Probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or hiding in the ball pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were we were probably both a bit fatter and a bit greyer than we had been yeah. in when in those uh, the glory days of our uh, of our invincible youth. And then you started Elios together. Is yeah, it, so the conversation started. I my memory's a little bit grainy of this period because I was I was still dealing with a, a lot of my own stuff. I was probably about a year ahead, I guess. Yeah, something like that. Um, but I think you know we we recognise we're in a similar position. We're going through the same sort of challenges. We had different experiences that that led to those. Um, and to be honest, that was probably the first time where I felt that that here is someone that can help me move forward. Um, in an effective way on the same path. And mm -hmm. that's what we started doing. So started, um, you know, obviously we re reconnected, started sharing stories, started um, relating to common elements of our two different experiences and realized that there are a lot of common elements to two very different experiences here. Um, and and that just led us towards the recognition that there might be something in this. Like there must be a lot of insights and understanding that we have generated individually and collectively that we can use to help other people avoid these either protracted recoveries or even better still avoid these events happening in the first place um and although when we formed elios you know we started in the sort of um, responsive space so helping people from a sort of mental health first aid perspective etc i think we knew that the long-term aim was um you know right in those early stages to get as far ahead um, of these challenges as possible and help people understand the huge opportunities that there were to proactively get ahead of the risk of you know, those challenges appearing for people later on. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and I think really what we do is, um, is we're trying to explore this sort of intersection of leadership and mental health, culture, mental health, you know, whether that's in 
the workplace or in personal lives. And, you know, ultimately, we spent a long time wrangling with this, didn't we? But, you know, we, what's our purpose? And, and, you know, and we ultimately came up with, um, you know, essentially distilling our purpose into inspiring people to, to live and work better by giving them the opportunity to understand themselves and each other better. I remembered it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, what that implies is the taking of action at some point as well. Um, so I can't remember what it quite what it was that you said about earlier, but but it got me thinking about um, using what's already in place. Uh, you know, what's the most normal, what's the most common thing? Mm. And, and one of those opportunities, I think, that we latched onto was the fact that people talk to each other, the fact they rely on connection. Um, so any mechanism around communication, connection, relationships has to be the mechanism to develop that understanding, particularly of each other. And, you know, we talk about normalizing conversations. In order to normalize conversations, potentially conversations need to be happening in the first place. Yeah. Um, so I see that sort of stage two. Uh, and, and that's really where we've got to is, is a point where, um, you know, how we um, offer what we do out to organizations is based around existing leadership structures and that they tend to exist. And the fact that um, people uh, at work and in wider life talk to each other. Yeah. So why not talk about this stuff? So it's fair to say that you're not coming, you're not trying to come in and change culture. You're trying to improve it or be an addition to. Yeah. We're, we're presenting um, in the way that we think is best, the opportunities for cultures to organically and naturally evolve. That's a good line. That. By better understanding you know, some of some of the core concepts and then building to a point where people are very clear on how they can use that knowledge and those opportunities to improve, you know, their experience at work and in their wider lives. Yeah. And, you know, we, the pandemic was, you know, it was difficult for everybody, but what it gave us was an opportunity to stop and think. So we, together with, you know, with other team members, delivered literally thousands of live training sessions you know giving people some knowledge over a team's call in a classroom for three six even eight hours at a time that's you know particularly when you're exploring something like mental health that's a lot to take in isn't it even three hours is you're getting bombarded with ideas and we realize that actually you know are people taking this knowledge and applying it or actually, are they so overwhelmed? That they, they understand it, they appreciate it, they get it in the moment. But that manual goes in a drawer and probably stays there, doesn't mm -hmm. it? <laughs> <laughs> so are you really having the impact on culture, on individual knowledge that you want to? Like longevity of it. Yeah, exactly. And we realized that we probably weren't. We realized that live training is great in many, many ways. But around a topic potentially so difficult like mental health you've got to gradually drip feed this stuff in you can't just bombard people with facts figures concepts ideas that blow their mind because let's face it it blew my mind it's like mm. well this stuff makes sense but what do i do with it and you know we've trained hundreds and hundreds of mental health first aiders we still you know we still do we think it's a great concept but actually there's there's a lot of mental health first aiders sitting out there going got my qualification what do i do with it i sort of get it but actually you know we came to this realization that what teams need at the team level is that um that opportunity 
you know, the resources, the structure, and ultimately the confidence to talk about these things on a regular basis. Because we talked about the fact that there are existing leadership structures within organizations. Most organizations will have a hierarchy. There are also existing communication structures, whether that's the weekly meeting, whether that's the briefing that they have before or after a shift. Mm. So actually, why don't we use those? Why don't we give them bite-sized things to talk about together? Because, you know, I can sit there and I can do my e-learning. I can click through, you know, you've done this stuff, whether it's um, health and safety training, GDPR. You click through. And if you're anything like me, you just keep on taking the test until you pass it. Yeah, yeah. And then it's gone. So you're not really applying that in everyday life. And so, you know, that's why we, we created the Genesis program, which is, and this is really the thinly failed sales pitch. Um, but, but it's this idea that actually you gotta, you got to warm people up to this stuff. So the first session that you run for 20, 30 minutes, it can be really awkward because people don't feel necessarily that they want to talk. But the time you've done the fifth, the sixth session, Actually, it does start to become normalized. People feel comfortable. Mm. And, I, and I think something we've got to recognize is that people, not everyone feel this is for them. But regardless, you know, if you can establish that collective alone environment, whatever the subject, there is a benefit to the wider environment and the, the wider culture. Um, but I think the opportunity that we had through our experience and recovery was learning on the job. Yeah. Like you're not going to experience, sorry, you're not going to improve even how you navigate stages or the latter stages of recovery unless you've got the ability to sort of learn on the job and, and implement different things at different times that potentially make changes and, and, you know, be prepared to do that. And sometimes, particularly if someone's affected by something, that takes quite a lot of courage. Sometimes it feels like it's accidental. Sometimes you won't move forward until, um, with the benefit of someone else, they help you clarify how to move forward. Um, but you don't, I think looking back at recovery, what I recognize is you don't learn how to recover before you start recovering. If that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're already, you find yourself, you're in that process already. Um, but and of there's course, a lot of trial and error, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, it's not all about recovery, but. Do you, think, um, do you think we'll get to a stage where we can understand recovery before the incident happens? Well, I, I think that's probably you know, one of the embedded aims of, of yeah. what we're trying to achieve it, you know, by, by bringing this stuff as far upstream as possible and presenting um, this subject area as an opportunity, if you understand it better, there might be stuff for you now, but there will certainly be stuff uh, for you in the future. And I think, you know, we've got to recognize that, that we were lucky in that we had the opportunity to individually learn and apply what we needed in order to move forward. But what we find in society now is that a lot of the things that have been going on in the last two years, you know, they're very far away from us. We can't directly influence them. We've got to recognize that that those are having at a macro level an effect on people, but they can't just, you know, grab a bit of what's going on in Ukraine or grab a bit of, um, uh, you know, lockdown, etc., mm. and just make those immediate changes, you know, within their own life. You know, they're they're seeping in. Um, but it's not as simple as this is happening in my life. I know how to fix it. Yeah. So, uh, so I think more and more people will see the opportunity, understanding some of the basics in order to have the chance to apply some of this stuff when it affects them in any context. What does, what would you guys say is ultimate success, Velios? 
if you if you if it was to be 2027 and you've kind of achieved everything you wanted to achieve with the company let's say what, what would that look like in the grand scheme of things yeah so i think for me it is it is evidence that people feel different i.e the culture feels different there's a really tangible gut-based set of evidence that people get this they've benefited from it they're starting to apply it um people are staying in companies people are being attracted to companies mm. you know, because these cultures are evolving um and, and that's a, i think the way i understand it a level up from just getting a positive case study back or some written feedback it is that you can within a company you can feel the vibe is different genuine impact then absolutely yeah 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 so more people moving from a sense of dependence to independence and then that evidence of that interdependence right. and, you know the exciting thing for us is that we, we don't actually know necessarily what interdependence really looks like organization by organization like the magic only happens on the other side hmm. we set people up for success by giving them the structure and the resources but i'm excited to hear about the future when you know organizations fully commit to you know this this process and this evolution um, and they start giving us evidence of how it's, you know, appearing a success for them that we couldn't, yeah. we couldn't have even anticipated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It'd be really interesting when that data comes out where you have companies that have brought that on board and five, six, years, five, six, seven years down the line saying, look, this is where we're at now. Staff, yeah. staff turnover's way lower than it used to be. There's no churn anymore. We yeah. keep the same staff members on. People are happier. Absolutely. Culture's improved. Business Absolutely. improved. The narrative's very different. Precisely, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, as selfish as it sounds, it will become a very, like I said earlier, a very important business metric where people think, okay, if we take care of mental health, we'll get 30% better production. Yeah. You know, and I think it will, it will come down to things like that. Yeah. Because it will, it will, it's going to affect the end product, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, metrics will come into it. And, you know, there seems to be this obsession with performance and, mm. and, and for good reason, mm. often. Um, but often, you know, that performance comes at a collective and certainly an individual cost. Um, and I think if people are evidently coming out and um, measuring well-being as more of an input, uh, that foundation yes. that sets people up to, you know, not only grow um, in, in a safe way without that degradation, but um, they can sustain themselves. Um, you know, teams are, you know, becoming stronger and stronger, not constantly breaking apart. Now, that's a good indication that people are starting to shift their mindset organizationally not away from performance but they're at least recognizing the found the importance of the foundations of a really good understanding of well-being that enables that performance mm-hmm. never thought yeah. that um, capitalism would be a main driver uh. for <laughs> mental health preparation but you know yeah. it, it's interesting isn't it on the motivations of businesses because it most of them it's going to be profit mm-hmm. um, or shareholder um, dividends or whatever it is um but there's so obviously a humane or ethical reason for doing this stuff, isn't there? As well as that uh, that business metric or, or the uh, or the profit driven um, the profit driven motive. And you know, you talk about what a success looked like. Mm. For me, I think it's sort of widespread adopt, adoption and acceptance of this idea of the shared responsibility of the CEO. Um, of the most junior member of an organization saying, look, you know, we've got to do this together. You know, we all want to be mentally healthy. 
but none of us can do this on our own. We can't do it by just paying for an app for everybody because you know it then pushes the incentive, the onus onto the individual. Right, we're just going to keep pushing you, but actually we're giving you an app so you can sort yourself out. It's not going to be by saying, right, we've trained one in 10 of our staff as mental health first aiders. It's a really good idea and has a lot of benefit to it, but you are stovepiping, you're siloing, siloing knowledge amongst 10% of the population. Whereas actually what we're trying to do is decentralize to almost democratize this access to the culture change, the knowledge, the education that, that, um, that is going to be beneficial. So, um, without wanting to sort of uh, go on about the army too much, I sort of liken it to this to this scenario that we faced in Afghanistan shortly after our arrival in there in, in, in 2006 of the, of the sort of particularly kinetic period. Started off as a shooting war, which we knew how to deal with. We typically knew how to deal with gunshot wounds. So um, death rate was pretty stable. The Taliban evolved. They started using explosive devices. Um, and um, death rate shot up. So what the realization was that we didn't necessarily need more surgeons back in the main camp. Okay, What we needed to do was, first of all, not tread on the devices in the first place. So equipping people with metal detectors and the knowledge to find them at the lowest level. Um, and then if somebody did tread on one, you know, what we needed is level, uh, sorry, knowledge at the lowest level of how to deal with a traumatic amputation so we can then stabilize, get them extracted to that, um, to that surgeon. And so it was, you know, the development of that, the knowledge and the capability, the skills and the resources down to that lowest level, which genuinely started saving lives. And that's what we're seeing. You know, we don't necessarily need more therapists, more psychiatrists. Now, clearly, you know, NHS mental health waiting lists are quite long, so that wouldn't be a bad thing. But actually far better that everybody, you know, mm. down to the lowest level has the knowledge, the skills, the resources, the confidence to protect their mental health, mm. to feel like they're allowed to, to feel like they are allowed to talk to people to get this stuff out there, to realize that they're not alone. Um, and so that's, for me, what success would look like is giving people that knowledge, that feeling of freedom and, and confidence to explore these things. Mm. So back to your story, it's, it, you know, that's really about democratizing people's um, sense of ownership and ability to uh, take hold of the risk factors and the protective factors um, in a way that is positive for them. And back to that idea of time-based permission, if people feel they don't have it, that's when on a daily basis they tend not to take ownership of their ability to, to influence, influence those risk and protective factors. And it's or, potentially really, really powerful. Yeah, or, or they use what time resources they have to adopt um, unhealthy coping mechanism. Absolutely. Which we are, you know, again, as humans, we're quite often wired to do, aren't we? So when we get stressed, we tend to want to eat high fat, high sugar foods because our body's telling us that we're not sure when we're going to eat again or we're going to have yeah. to run, aw run away. So I start eating donuts when I'm depressed or I'm anxious. Yeah. I, I was very good at that. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. tend to eat them when I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, or I, I reach for the beers, I reach for the wine actually rather than and, and so whilst we think that's a really good coping mechanism and actually in moderation is fine but realizing that actually what we're probably better off doing is going for a walk getting a bit of a connection with nature or going and chatting to a friend 
And so helping understand that it's perfectly natural to use these unhelpful things like bottling things up, drinking, taking drugs, all of those sorts of things, actually it's not going to help. Yeah. And, and, and having a degree of awareness to start off with, but also the encouragement, the peer support to break out of those cycles mm. um, and building that mental fitness routine in, alongside, you know, maybe a physical fitness routine. And a lot of those habits are, um, sadly, they're enjoyable, aren't they? Um, <laughs> Very. But it's back to that idea of dependence. If you if you recognise, and everyone can do this, if you recognise that either in the moment or on a regular basis you are dependent on alcohol, bags of donuts, you know, McDonald's, in order to deal with short-term stress or emotional interference, that is actually a clue that you can pay attention to. Now, the alternative is potentially that you can um, you really master that sort of internal emotional regulation without the need for those external things. But um, we tend to reach for those external things because they're the, the obvious options when our body is saying stress is showing up, anxiety is showing up, you need something in order to work the problem short term. Um, and it's really available. Yeah, yeah. It's there in yeah, our consciousness, yeah, yeah. isn't it? And, and actually, you know, McDonald's is never more than five miles away, apparently. Oh, it, well, it's literally like <laughs> 500 yards from our office as well. Same here. Yeah, um, yeah so, so it took me a long time to figure that out. That actually, um, you know, society is, um, particularly from a retail perspective, it's set up to get you to buy in those moments um, and use things that are ultimately unhelpful for your physical and your mental health. Um, and... Um, yeah, I went through the the donut phase, but for 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 other reasons like you know, immediate response, five bag of donuts. Um, went through the fatty food phase. Um, I, this is when I, oh god, five years ago, um, tried to respond to my bad habits in a in a logical, deliberate way by training as a personal trainer. Started working as a personal trainer in the Link Center. The irony was that I was terrible at it anyway. But the irony was that I got more fat and depressed when I was a personal trainer than before. I, Why do you I think was. that was? Because I'd, I'd latched onto, I built a picture in my mind of what success looked like in the short term. Yeah. It wasn't the right thing. I was unhappy in that role. It didn't, it didn't really fit with my identity. But it, yeah, and but so that was the, the behaviors part continued. of re-establishing some sense of identity. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. So, that, yeah. So, so on paper, it was right to go after something in order to move forward just so happened I picked the wrong thing. I actually got caught by a client um, having finished a session with her, um, coming out of um, McDonald's, having talked about healthy eating, like two minutes after a session. And um, it's a good job she didn't know what was in that bag because that's when I was sort of um, stocking up with, you know, six triple cheeseburgers or four Big Macs and three chips. And, you know, the the, the cravings were out of control. Yeah, And then of course you've, realize i'm a complete fraud this is inauthentic like this is not the right thing for me time to go again <laughs> uh, isn't it funny though i think is is it like a british cultural thing that in good times we turn to alcohol in bad times we turn to alcohol oh yeah. let's have a drink because yeah, yeah. you know you've just you know passed your driving test or yeah, yeah, sadly this, you know and, it, and, it, and you know in the army when, have you done yours yet <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we were growing up in the army uh those formative years of our sort of 20s that's absolutely it. it, but it was probably magnified even more. When yeah. things went well, we drank. When things went wrong, we drank. In in the field, when you were when you were in Afghanistan, places like that, was there was there the most abstract ways of dealing with these things? It, you know, if you were for in the me, field, it was, was smoking. It, was I, it, I, I don't smoke. Everyone smokes when they're yeah 
you know, after after a, a firefight, after a contact, I'd be saying, right, lads, who's got a fag? Really? Yeah, because... And with the majority of you do that? Yeah. 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 Could you get alcohol on tour? Is that like a... Was it strict? No. Yeah. No. I, I mean, you just... Um, you, you tend to adapt to your environment. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, the way the, the forces provide for you in those situations are when you're back in camp, you know, the food's get good, the gyms are there, you have a space to relax, you know, um, even though it's still the middle of the desert. Um, but what you have when you're out in the field and, you know, I remember going out for, in, in theory, um, 12 hours um, and therefore packed for 12 hours. We ended up being out on the ground for three weeks with with no kit and so on. We've been resupplied out there. But because you have each other, but you're also in role in the zone, everyone's you know mind and mentality is focused on, you know, what you're trying to achieve. And you could always um, just turn your pants inside out. So. <laughs> <laughs> then um, yeah, once, yeah. In, to a certain extent, in those moments, that's all you need. You just need to know you've got the right people around you. So the idea of needing other stuff just just goes out your, out your thinking. And, and in a way, I found being on tour the easiest thing. Yeah. Because you're not yeah. worrying about stuff that's going on at home. You're literally, mm. yeah, you've got the right people around you. Uh, you're focused on one thing. Um, and... Um, yeah, in many ways, that's why I think a lot of um, the negative mental impact of those sorts of experiences doesn't show up until a long time later. You rarely see it in the moment. You know, you it lose, might be it, purpose. It might be you know what we would call battle shock or something like that. Somebody mm. is, is literally shocked into paralysis or whatever it is, but that quickly comes out. They then move on, and then it's not until you're back in camp, maybe yeah. amongst your family, maybe you are drinking. Maybe it's two, three, five years later when actually um, all of these factors sort of come come to surface. Yeah, and I know I know this is a weird idea for us to say actually in a way that we felt lucky that we were able to go away with work for six, seven months, focus on the job, and of course you're thinking about your family, etc. But you're not dealing with all that usual stuff that life brings you on a daily basis. You know, you're not really distracted from your ability to do your job. And what I recognise is that, that's why I have so much respect for the police, having worked with them, is that they experience potentially multiple traumatic incidents or experiences, particularly, um, you know, from a position they don't know what they're going into from one day to the next. They, they experience all that stuff during one working day, and then they're expected not only to go back in, um, you know, live a normal life, mm. but... You know, there's not much time in order to process stuff, um, you know, regather yourself, reset before you go again. Yeah. And and then, you know, clearly that has the potential to have a degrading effect uh, as you go through the career. So what I mean by being lucky is, you know, we were away for six, seven months having trained for that operation and we were able to get in the zone without all those other things being part of that picture. Um, and, and whether it's, you know, the police, other elements of the emergency services or not, we've got to recognise that, Whatever it is that people do at work, they are going to have um, stressors and, and you know, factors around stress that are difficult to deal with, and they bring home every night. So, you know, we're all ultimately in the same position to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, my last question for you guys, um, yeah. given what's going on in Eastern Europe, and I guess this is more of a question for you, Ollie, because Tim, you don't watch the news, which is probably not something much. we should all do, um, <laughs> or not do. Yeah. Um, what is how, how much of an impact do you think mental health and morale has on the battlefield? There was a there was a retired British general who said morale is is 
equally, if not more important than actual equipment you have mm. as a military. Yeah, definitely. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, a motivated, well-led army, you know, has the ability to, if not um, defeat, at least resist and wait, wait out, mm. you know, a, a well-equipped, well-supported, um, but fundamentally unhappy, poorly led force. Mm. Uh, and I've seen that in, in a number of scenarios where I've deployed, um, actually morale, motivation, a sense of purpose is absolutely vital. Without that, you know, no, no end of weapons is ultimately going to win you a war. And, and I think, you know, you're seeing very, two very um, opposite cultures with the Russian forces, which are typically um, very, very hierarchical. You know, you hear stories of a, a drone deployment having to be authorized by a general. Mm. Whereas, you know, the Ukrainians probably, you know, it's probably a senior NCO saying, right, look, let's get that up there. So that's that's bred of some kind of insecurity, isn't it? You know, that that top heavy um, hierarchical command structure. Um, if you combine that with an obvious lack of care for the people who are in harm's way, what does that feel like to be a young Russian individual who possibly may be a conscript? If you're not, the, if you don't want to be there in the first place, how hard are you going to fight? Mm. How committed are you going to be to that? You know, you see, um, you will see desertions. You will see officers probably getting shot by their own soldiers. Wow. Probably not, not unrealistic. Whereas you see footage of Ukrainians who are literally fighting for their survival, um, singing their national anthem together as a unit before they then go in. You know they have psychological safety. They know that they've got each other's backs. They know that they are evicting people who have occupied their homeland, their villages. In the Russian army, I would suggest psychological safety is a pretty scarce commodity. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, it's another example of the potential power of that interdependence. Mm. You know, that really well-established, connected culture based on trust, um, shared values, shared beliefs, values alignment. Um, and, and I think you know, what, we're, what we're seeing is the two complete opposite scenarios in that space. Yeah. Yeah. And and the you know the Russian command and control structure is pretty flimsy. Their ability to sustain is not what it should be, what could be, what we thought it was. And it's a really interesting way it's playing out is that um it's taken the shine off the might of the Russian forces. You know, we always assumed that they would be a difficult foe. They're not easy. Um but um just shows that the moral component which is what we would call it is huge is huge yeah. you know what is it the physical component the moral component and the there's another one i can't remember uh it's been a it's been a while but that moral component is absolutely vital and that's why you know on the whole in the british army it is good because there are volunteers broadly people believe in what they are doing typically we are mostly well led you know um, values are an important part of it. Usually, you know, there are good relationships within units. You know, that was certainly my experience. Um, and those things count. They matter. You know, when you're on a battlefield, it sounds a bit cliche to say it, but you're not fighting for queen, now king and country. You're literally fighting for the people around you. Mm. And it's, it does sound cliche, but it is absolutely true. Whereas, actually, what you're probably finding in the Russian army at the moment is that 
they're worried about you know being put on a charge or shot for desertion or all of these things but also they don't want to be there in the first place mm. there is no belief in what they're doing when they go back whenever this finishes you know they're probably not going to be well received by their country folk just imagine that putting your life on the line maybe being injured and going back and be forced to go being forced to go and not being valued because actually nobody was really up for doing it in the first place yeah, values alignment is really, really key. And I, just having this conversation, you know, it's just clarified in my mind that I was lucky enough to um, to join the military based upon values alignment. Mm. I felt that was a good fit. When I found myself in a different position, I was lucky enough again for us to form our organisation based upon values alignment. And, you know, when it hasn't gone well for me, it's when I've tried to do something or I've joined an organisation where that values alignment is not in place. And, and you guys clearly will have values alignment when you set on this path mm. and you started Otter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it's really, really key. Do you, do you think Russia's going to have, um, whenever this conflict ends, do you think Russia's going to have a severe problem with mental health at home because of what's happened? Yeah, but it, it's not really, I don't want to generalise, sure. it's not really a thing in the Russian culture anyway from what I can see. Mm. You know, it, probably wouldn't get much talk about psychological safety with with mr putin um i don't think they'd be interested in genesis but, no exactly exactly <laughs> looking for an in yeah might be worth a go um maybe their budgets are a bit a bit um a bit tight at, at the moment um yeah i think massive because you've got a huge amount of risk factors maybe you've got what we might call moral injury mm. which is essentially where people are psychologically affected when they've been forced to contravene their own ethical standards, their own moral standards. So I'd say that'd be a huge issue because people are being asked to do, you know, look at the amount of attacks on civilians that are going on. You know, that result in moral injury, um, a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, mm. uh, which compound possibly with post-traumatic impact. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I can't think of many worse scenarios for, for people's mental health. Um, combine that maybe with a physical injury. You know, it, it's a real powder keg there of, of, of terrible mental health, I would think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to go back to the values alignment, you, you know, you see that actually being on the right side of history, and you know, this is a very Western-centric way of looking at it, starts to play out. So, you know, you hear one Russian minister recently saying, we are no longer fighting Ukraine, we are now fighting NATO. Now, NATO does not have troops on the ground, certainly not declared anyway. But what they do have is they have the moral support. They are equipping them with weapons that can be decisive, which can shape the battlefield in a way that they might not have other. Because we can see that a an international norm, an international value has been compromised by Russia's actions there. It's interesting. Um Gents, thanks so much for coming today. It's been an awesome Pleasure. podcast. It's been fun. Um, we've enjoyed it, Dan, haven't we? Yeah, I think it's it's really nice to speak to professionals or you know people who who are openly talking about this and are also trying to help other people. Anyway. So yeah, yeah, it's been really great chatting to you both. Good. Well, thank you for having us, guys. Thanks, guys.